You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Well, hello, uh, Rabbi Block. Um, Welcome to Sophia, uh, which is a a program that I uh, host on uh, the Meaning of Life TV, uh, which is a part of the Blogging Heads TV network. Um, I'm Daniel uh, Kaufman. I'm a professor of philosophy at Missouri State University, and I'm very pleased to have with me Rabbi Barbara Block. Uh, Rabbi Block, would you like to uh, say a few things by way of introducing yourself? Thank you, Dan. Yes, I'm Rabbi Barbara Block. I am the rabbi of Temple Israel in Springfield, Missouri. I've been here now for a year and a half. I am a second career rabbi. I was ordained in 2010 from Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati. I served Congregation Beth Aaron in Billings, Montana for four years before arriving in Springfield. Um, and just for disclosure, not that we're, not not that this is the sort of conversation where disclosures are necessary, but I should just say tell everyone that uh, I have a very close relationship with Rabbi Block. I chaired the committee that the hiring committee that hired her. Um, she taught my daughter her bat mitzvah. She is the she is the rabbi at the synagogue to which I belong, and I also serve on the synagogue's board of directors. So I couldn't be more uh, compromised with respect to <laughs> my feelings about Rabbi Block, um, uh, which uh, which uh, which are are strong and very positive. But the nature of the conversation is not not the such that that will that that will be an issue. But I just wanted everyone to know that. Um, so Rabbi. I wanted to have you on to talk about Judaism generally, uh, but more specifically about Reform Judaism, um, in large part because the, 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 the Meaning of Life TV audience is very interested in religion, um, but most of the programming has been either on Christianity or on, interestingly enough, Buddhism, in which there's a lot of interest uh, in the United States, and very little on Judaism, and I find that oftentimes people don't know very much about it. Um, and so... This is going to be largely informational, uh, with you sort of sharing your knowledge and understanding uh, of Judaism and of Reform Judaism specifically. And so maybe what we'll do is I'll ask you some questions that will sort of get us into these into these issues, and then you can um, you know you can expand on them to whatever degree uh, you like. Does that sound like a like a good plan? That sounds great. Thank you. Okay, so first of all, um, right off the bat, I think that. It's difficult sometimes for people to understand Judaism because when they think of religion, they think of Christianity. And there, there are ways in which Judaism is very different from Christianity, and I don't, and I don't mean necessarily doctrinally. Um, but just in terms of what it means to say that someone's Jewish, to speak of Judaism. So maybe you could just talk a little bit on what Judaism is and what we mean when we say that someone is Jewish or what several sorts of things we might mean when we say that someone is Jewish. I'm going to start with being Jewish, and one is Jewish if one is born to Jewish parents, or if one joins the Jewish people through conversion. And there's more you can say about parent, which parent, and so on, but that's a simple answer. Um, And someone who is Jewish may or may not practice Judaism. Explain that a little bit. So there are people who are Jewish by birth. They recognize Jewish parentage. (coughs) Excuse me. 
they, but so they are Jewish, perhaps as an ethnicity, <clears throat> right? In right. the same way that uh, someone might identify, it's not exactly like being Irish, but it's being a part of a people because there is a Jewish people. So you can be a part of the people, but not practice the religion. But I have to say, Judaism is more than a religion. That is, that's one meaning of Judaism. Judaism, of course, is a religion. But I'm going to explain a bit um, from the perspective of Mordecai Kaplan, a rabbi of the 20th century, early 20th century in America, who said that Judaism is first and foremost a civilization and that the religion is a part of civilization, but it's not the whole thing. So Kaplan would identify that their Judaism is a culture, that that culture includes foods and holidays. So you might be Jewish and celebrate great Passover without be having uh, certain reliefs, beliefs that we would identify with the religion. Uh, literature, there's Jewish literature, not just the ancient literature, but there are Jewish authors, Saul Bellow, and uh, a wide range of Jewish authors that we might consider to be part of Jewish literature, Chaim Potok, favorite of mine. And there are Jewish arts. So there's, there's a whole culture there that is part of Judaism. And very importantly, there are Jewish values, among which I would identify welcoming the stranger, and hospitality, honesty, education is often mentioned as a strong Jewish value. And it's not that other people of other cultures might not also have those values, but these are communally considered to be important. And another value that is important is the value of community. There are some religions which are about individual salvation and about the individual. But Judaism has a very strong focus on community and the Jewish community. And I'll say in all religions you have, for instance, in Christianity, the church is the body of Christ. And in Buddhism, you have the Sangha. But I think the community in Judaism has a primacy that is, is very special to Judaism. Do you think that that's partly because there is this distinctive peoplehood sense of, of being Jewish in addition to, in other words, someone who's, someone who's, let's say, an Irish Catholic, you know, they're, they're, they're going to belong to multiple communities in a sense, um, um, because, and, maybe, and maybe their Irishness gives them their sense of peoplehood, whereas their Catholicism, but for Judaism, it serves these multiple roles, and so maybe that's one of the reasons why the communal aspect you think that might be? That is certainly a part of it, and the fact that for many years, uh, in many in many places we've lived, Jews have been more restricted at, to their own people. This is not so much the case now, but that's there, a good point. Yeah, Jews in most European countries for most of history were not citizens of their country. They were 
basically only part of the Jewish people. And I also want to say that there, when we speak of Jewish culture, there is not just one Jewish culture. Uh, some of the more well-known distinctions are Ashkenazic Jewish culture, which is uh, German and Eastern European. My heritage and the heritage of most Jews in the United States is Ashkenazic Jewish. That's what people in America tend to think of when they think of Jewish culture. Right. But there's a, another culture uh, called Sephardic, which came out of Spain and spread to Mediterranean lands, and also Mizrahi culture, the culture of the people who never left the Middle East. And then there, and the culture varies from place to place. And so I see at Christmas time, Christians talk about how people in this country celebrate Christmas and how people in this part of the world celebrate Christmas. And Jews too have different ways of celebrating and observing and different cultures, different music, depending on where they have lived. But our texts and our rituals tie us together. Okay. Um, so that's actually, that's, that's great. It's, it's very, very thorough. And I think, I think people will, if they don't understand that, they're not going to understand it. Um, let's talk now a little bit about, about Judaism in America, um, where people may, may be familiar with the fact that there seem to be in America various denominations of Judaism. Um, there's what's called obviously Orthodox Judaism, there's what's called Reform Judaism. Somewhere in between, there's what's called Conservative Judaism that, that elsewhere is called Majority Judaism. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about these. Are these denominations like the denominations of, of the Protestant uh, that we find in the Protestant Church? Or what, what do these denote, these different designations? One important point is that these are not different religions, that whether you are an Orthodox Jew, Reformed Jew, Conservative Jew, uh, you are still a Jew. And unlike in Christianity, where if you move, say, from being an Episcopalian to a Catholic, you need to convert. Uh, you do not convert when you change from attending, participating as a conservative Jew to an Orthodox Jew or a Reformed Jew. We're all one religion. The Reformed terminology is that we are different movements or different streams. Orthodoxy doesn't like that. We haven't come to, a, to an agreement about the language that we would use. But I'm going to use the Reformed terminology that there are different movements within Judaism. And as you mentioned, these movements are American. My mother growing up in Vienna, Austria, had never heard of Orthodox and Reform, although there was um, there were different ways of, of observing. There were people who were more strict about things, people who were less strict about keeping rules, but there weren't these different movements. That said, Reform Judaism actually did start in Europe, in Germany uh, specifically, in the it, it arose from for two reasons. One is that there was the Enlightenment in Europe, and uh, during the Enlightenment, Christians started to look at their Bible as an historical document, and Jews did as well. And the other, and I'll get back to that, but the other. Um, 
the other development that influenced the beginning of Reform Judaism is that in the early 19th century, Jews began to have citizenship in the countries where they lived in Europe, starting in France and moving to Germany and then to other countries. Until then, Jews were granted an edict of tolerance. They were allowed to live in a land or expelled and then welcomed back, depending on the whims of the local leadership. They were subject to Jewish legal authority within the Jewish community. So the rabbis and the Jewish institutions had a great deal of power over people's lives. If they had a conflict with someone in the Christian community, then that would go to the uh, courts of the land. But internal matters were settled internally. And there was strong need for the Jewish authorities to exert control so that the people did not get in trouble with the local Christian authorities. So that started changing in 1800. And Jews were able at that time to pursue secular education. They had not been welcome before that in the universities. So the education changed. Their social opportunities changed. They had much more social intercourse with the peoples about them. And there were some who thought that it would be better if, for instance, our worship services were more like German Protestant worship services. And so they changed the worship service uh, to be shorter and to, in various ways, resemble what their Christian neighbors were doing. So let me, let me just interrupt you for one second um, and ask you a question about this. Yeah. And, and I suspect the answer is going to be both, but I'm just curious. Um, to what extent would you say that the Reform Jewish movement is the result of the effects of the Enlightenment and modern thought on Judaism? Uh, and of course, one of the great Enlightenment philosophers uh, was Moses Mendelssohn, um, um, who, who was a Jew, um, and who actually, uh, I believe, Kant thought very highly of. Um, um, to what extent it was because of Enlightenment and, and, and an, an application of the sort of rationalistic, more rationalistic ways of thinking to religion. And how much of it was a result of the desire to assimilate more fully because this new opportunity to sort of live, to become citizens of these countries uh, had arisen? It, it was probably both, and it probably varied with the individual, and it changed over time. And reform started not as a capital R reform movement, but as a small R, Jews, and remember there weren't Orthodox Jews yet either. Right. It was just some Jews wanted to change some things. And I think it was all of the above. Moses Mendelssohn, whom you mentioned, was someone who wanted to be uh, a Jew in the home in the synagogue and a citizen on the street. That was his way of cutting it. He would still, by the way, be considered an Orthodox Jew right. by standard because right. he still followed... Uh, the traditional teachings of Judaism. So, and, and within orthodoxy uh, today, there is a very wide spectrum. None of these movements or streams are monolithic. So, I, you asked about in America. So, in America, Jews have been here since the 1600s, and we, this was a very fertile ground for reform because we have always been citizens since 17, 
uh, after the, not 1776, but once we formed a government in this country, we have always been citizens of the United States. And the United States celebrates individual, individualism and autonomy and, and plurality of, of religion. And so when Germans came to this country in great numbers in the mid-19th century, they, they, they brought with them the reforms uh, that they had been developing in Germany. And America was a very hospitable place for these reforms. And the reform movement with capital R had not yet been established, but by that time there were definite uh, reform congregations. And in, re in response to the reforms, the Jews who did not think that reform was a good idea named themselves Orthodox which in a way is, is not a traditional Jewish idea, right, right. practice. But they, they reacted against the, the people who said, we don't have to do things the way we've always done them. And right. there hasn't, right. and in fact, history shows that there hasn't always been one way that things have been done. So the Orthodox Jews chose one of many Jewish legal codes, the Shulchan Aruch, and said, this is the right way. Right, okay. I also want to say, you know, I, I speak as a Reformed Jew, and at the same time, and I will, I will defend, uh, do apologetics for Reformed Judaism, I think that we have a lot right, but I don't think that any one movement has it all right. And I think that each of the movements has some have good things to contribute and that we can learn from each other. So I do want to say that. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I did not, um, you know, you are a reform rabbi and especially given how you came to the profession, to this career, you were very conscious of what you were doing. You were already highly educated before. And so you certainly believe in the, what reform reforms take on this because of the way you, you came to it. You know, you thought this through. You didn't you just, it wasn't like you were born into something and then went straight to seminary. I mean, you really must have thought this through before you chose. Didn't you, didn't you flirt with being a reconstructionist? I, I will, I will give a bit of personal history here yeah. if I might, that I, my parents, neither of them actually in some ways was a reformed Jew, uh, but they sent us to reform Jewish, they joined a reform temple. It was the closest to where they were at. Uh, and uh, so I had 11 years of reform Jewish religious school back in the 60s. With, and the, it was quite a formal setting. Uh, and I then experienced uh, Jewish life in college, at a college where we had a small Jewish student group, no rabbi, we did things ourselves, and the conservative kids kind of took over, and we prayed out of their prayer books, and so I became very familiar uh, and to some extent comfortable with the conservative prayer service. I, like many Jews and many others, wandered around in my 20s, uh, kind of a seeker, and had had fallen out of love with Reform Judaism. And when I became a founding member of a congregation in Minneapolis, St. Paul, in 1988, one of the big questions was affiliation with a movement. 
And we looked both at the reform movement and the reconstructionist movement. And of the two, I, I leaned somewhat reconstructionist, although I thought in the end we were best affiliating with any movement. That was where I was at at that time. Right. In 2003, there was the big biennial of the Union for Reform Judaism in Minneapolis, and I attended and I heard the president, the rabbi who was president of the union, speak on Saturday morning at our big Shabbat service, and he outlined what he thought was important, and I thought he was right on on all his points, and that really moved me back in more into uh, reform frame of mind. There are a number of reasons that I have... Uh, in a way, come home to Reform Judaism, but it is not the Reform Judaism of my youth. Yeah, yeah, and we and since we haven't really, you know, we're going to talk in detail about the various elements of Reform Judaism, and so we probably shouldn't front load because people won't know what we're talking about. Um, 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 just one I, thing. I, I, go ahead. I, let me say, Reform is not Reform ED at the end. It's Reform because we we see. Re Reform Judaism, Judaism, and our understanding as changing over time. So there's ongoing reform. It's not like we went in and we changed things. We got it right and we stopped. Right. We're not like the we're not like the Jewish version of Calvinists, right? Because yeah, <laughs> that's called Reformed Christianity, right? Um, one thing I just would mention, just so the viewers don't realize, um, the Reconstructionism that you mentioned. You know, if we were to map out these denominations on a sort of a left-right uh, spectrum, then the Reconstructionist is even more liberal, progressive than the Reform is. It should be mentioned, though, that it was it was founded, it was created by the Mordecai Kaplan, who you mentioned, um, who I believe was, was he not a rabbi at the Jewish Theological Seminary? So he was of the conservative movement. And his aim was not to start a movement but to develop a philosophy that would inform all the movements, That's which right. to some right. extent it has. Yeah, he's been very influential, some, yeah. Some yeah. of his followers decided they wanted their own institutions and uh, their own congregations, right. and right. so now there's Reconstruction. All right, so let's talk about Reform Judaism. And I will, I will say, you know, it is the largest denomination of Judaism or movement in the United States. It's, I looked this up, as of last year, was 35%. Um, with the others uh, taking up a much smaller share and a significant chunk, about 30%, not identifying with any movement at all. And so, you know, this is mainstream Judaism in the United States, and so it's perfectly apropos to talk about um, and to get into. Um, um, and uh, odds are, if you know a Jewish person, you, you likely know a reform, uh, a reform Jew. So let me, let's start off with... Um, um, the, the first thing I wanted to ask is, you know, uh, one of the characteristics, it seems to me, of a lot of the, the modern, more liberal versions of these Western religions, whether it's the mainline Protestants or Jews, uh, Jews like Reformed Jews, um, because of the demographics that these uh, religions draw from, you're, you're likely to have people who are highly educated, who are professionals, and who pro whose, pro whose belief in the supernatural is probably not uh, the same sort that you would find in more traditional communities. Um, um, uh, what, what is the, 
A, what is the official reform view on God and the supernatural? But B, what has been your experience and what in your estimation, and obviously this is anecdotal, of what the average layperson in the, in the, in the congregation's views on this are? Okay, there is not one reform position about God. And also within traditional Judaism, it's understood that although God does not change, unless you are a certain kind of mystic, God does not change, but our understanding of God changes. We see in the course of the stories of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, and a developing understanding about God. And in our liturgy, which goes way back, one of our prayer, one of the prayers developed by the rabbis starts out, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And the ancient rabbis asked, why do we say God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, rather than God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? God's the same. And the answer is, this is traditional Judaism, that in each generation, we have a different relationship with God. Mm. Abraham's relationship with God was different from Isaac's, was different from Jacob's. So now moving into reform, the Reformed Jewish conception of God, that too has changed over time. And we do not have a creed. The closest we, we're not a creedal religion. In order to belong to a congregation, you do not have to sign a statement of faith. We're considered more covenantal. Um, it's a matter of breach, a covenant between us as a people and God. So there's, the, the closest we have to a creedal statement in our service is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is our God. Our God is one. Adonai is one. So we have the oneness of God. And then you can ask, well, what does that mean? And things that we would traditionally say don't fit. There's a lot that does fit. What doesn't fit in that oneness of God is that natural objects are not God. The sun is not God. Right. The moon is not God. God is not the entire universe. There's something else beyond that is God. The second thing that is important uh, because we're um, in relationship with Christian culture is that it is not a Jewish belief that God would ever be on earth incarnate as a human being. That is definitely outside what would be acceptable Jewish belief. So let me, before you could, before you go on, let me just ask you, uh, just for to refine some of this a little bit. Um, does Reform Judaism accept the basic notion of the God of the attributes, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, and does do we do does it think of God roughly as a supernatural person, right? Or or are there more inchoate, vaguer? Um, I think there there more. You know, at some point, um, various points in history, those those concepts were debated. Um, the closest we have actually to a Jewish statement from the Torah about God 
I have it here is from the book of Exodus. And, and God is portrayed in many, many different ways in the Hebrew Bible. But there's one point at which Moses really, Moses wants to see God's face. God says, you can't see my face and live, but I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and make, and I will pronounce my name before you. And what God says, according to the Hebrew Bible, about God is Adonai, Adonai, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in kindness and faithfulness, extending kindness to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, God does not remit all punishment, but visits the iniquity of parents upon children and children's children upon the third and fourth generation. It is overall a very positive view of God, but, not, but, but there are some consequences to bad behavior but only to the third or fourth generation, which in, in a way you can interpret naturalistically. If parents are, do really bad things, the reality is their children suffer. Yeah. But, but God is forgiving. God, um, God visits the, the good stuff you do lasts for a thousand generations, the bad stuff to the third or fourth. So it's a, it's a very positive and loving image of God. Is it all-powerful? Is it omnipotent? Is it omnibenevolent? Um, can argue about that. There's no statement of that, theological statement yeah. of, that, of that kind um, in, in our literature. I think we, we are far more nuanced in what we say. Now, but that's what you just read. To, so that's biblical. Right. Uh, but in terms of Reformed Judaism as a modern... Okay. liberalizing version of this ancient uh, religious tradition. Do you th uh, is there a difference in the way that reform looks at God in keeping with its modern modernity or, or not? Okay. So there were, um, we don't have a creed and we don't have an authority as such, but we have, a conference of rabbis, of which I'm a member, the Central Conference of American Rabbis, my rabbinical association. And from time to time, that association has met to come out with statements of principles. And beginning with the Pittsburgh platform uh, in the 1900s, which was a foundational document, I'm not going to read from that. Uh, that talked about a God idea. And I'm going to read you excerpts of what the three following, uh, two following statements said, and then the most recent statement. So the Columbus Platform of 1937 starts, about God, starts, the heart of Judaism and its chief contribution to religion is the doctrine of the one, the living God, who rules the world through law and love. Okay. So that's where we were in 1937 as as a movement. Now, individuals might think differently. Right, that's a that's separate question. Yeah. That's what the rabbi said. The next time a statement, a platform was made was in 1976. So history had happened between yeah. 1977 and 1976. And the statement is very different about God. And this is an excerpt from the middle of the statement about God. The trials of our own time and the challenges of modern culture 
have made studied belief and queer understanding difficult for some. Mm. Nevertheless, we ground our lives personally and community, communally on God's reality and remain open to new experiences and conceptions of the divine. So open to new experiences. That's it, fascinating. It allows, yes, it allows for a variety and it acknowledges that not everybody is able to believe. That really leaves open a tremendous range of possible ways that an individual congregant may think about God. That's really fascinating. And it's worth saying just for the audience that the Reconstructionist movement explicitly disavowed supernaturalism. Um, uh, and Kaplan, as you said, rightly said Judaism is primarily a civilization. The Reform never explicitly eschewed supernaturalism, but it sounds to me like they really sort of left things in such a way that it could accommodate almost any view of the nature of the God, of sort of the nature of the Godhead um, with, beyond, with, within certain boundaries, yes. Bounds. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Right. That, that's so really I, interesting. Yeah, I, I thought it would be to, to our listeners. And I want now to read the most recent, not plat, they didn't call it a platform, but the statement of principles of the CCAR, which was written, uh, and this is by a committee of rabbis in 1999. Okay. And by the way, all of these were written by committees of rabbis, and they were the view of the majority, not everybody necessarily agreed with everything. Right, right. Said. So here's what was said, and I'm going to read it in its entirety in 1999. We affirm the reality and oneness of God, even as we may differ in our understanding of the divine presence. We affirm that the Jewish people is bound to God by an eternal brief covenant as reflected in our varied understandings of creation, revelation, and redemption. We affirm that every human being is created in the image of God and that therefore every human life is sacred. We regard with reverence all of God's creation and recognize our human responsibility for its preservation and protection. We encounter God's presence in moments of awe and wonder, in acts of justice and compassion, in loving relationships and in the experiences of everyday life. We respond to God daily through public and private prayer, through study and through the performance of other mitzvot, the sacred obligations, to God and to other human beings. We strive for, and, and re remember this is rabbis speaking, we would like Jews all to do these things daily, whether or not everybody actually does. We strive for a faith that fortifies us through the vicissitudes of our lives, illness and healing, transgression and repentance, bereavement and consolation, despair and hope. We continue to have faith that in spite of the unspeakable evils committed against our people and the sufferings endured by others, the partnership of God and humanity will ultimately prevail. And this partnership between God and humans is a very important idea in modern day reform Judaism. And finally, we trust in the, our traditions promise that although God created us as finite beings, the spirit within us is eternal. 
and the summation line is in all these ways and more, God gives meaning and purpose to our lives. That also seems to leave a lot of space. Um, Because one of the things that struck me as you were reading that is how many times they said that we encounter God in ways that are not the meeting of a person, right? I mean, I think in Christianity, especially Protestant Christianity, there's such an emphasis on the relationship with Jesus that the notion of what it is to encounter God is very much analogous to what it is to meet another person, except that the person is a supernatural person. And this, you encounter God in in the things you do in your life, and the sort of the in the in the roles that you play, and the the, and so that also seems to leave a lot of room for the individual congregant to sort of think of this in their own way within a certain broad uh, broad frame. Which I is one of the things I find appealing about. I mean, I should tell people. I mean, I'm if people ask me, I define myself as an atheist in the sense that I don't believe that anything there is anything supernatural. Yet I have no, you know, I'm very comfortable uh, saying also that I belong to my religious tradition because at least the the version of it that that we belong to seems to me at least to permit a pretty wide latitude of how we of how we um, interact with and see our relationship to these things. Um, um, I hope I haven't admitted too much, and you're not going to throw me off the board now for for, for disclosing this, but. Um, and I knew this before you. I know. <laughs> um, that's that's really really interesting. Um, let's let's go ahead. So you were going to say something. One more thing I want to say about this in your daughter's class, the eighth grade in high school religious school class. Um, I was I was told by their previous teacher that they had an interest in in God, the topic of God, and so I brought with me to the class. A, an exercise with 21 statements about God. And for each one, they could mark, yes, they agreed with it. No, they didn't agree with it. Or that they were not sure. Hmm. And some of the questions are, um, I believe that God does not interfere in the affairs of people. I believe that God intended us never to understand certain things about the world. I believe that God rewards good. I believe that God listens to prayer. I believe that praying can benefit the person who prays, even if God doesn't listen. So there's a whole wide range of statements, 21 statements. There was not a single statement among the 21 that six students who responded to this all responded the same way. Hmm. So there was no consensus on any of them. That's right. And so, you know, that class loves debate. So I set it up with some of them where there were about even numbers of yeses and nos to talk about it. And yeah. that's, you know, one of the meanings of Israel, we talk about the people of Israel as those who struggle with God. And I think one of the benefits to our communal religious life is talking together about these very difficult and deep issues. And I also did a similar exercise with the adults, and there was no consensus there either. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so we talked we talked quite a bit about the view of God and of the supernatural, and and let's now talk a little bit about the texts. Um, um, so, first of all, maybe you might just educate the viewers a little bit, just briefly, on what are the canonical texts in Judaism. 
Um, um, and, um, and then talk about what is the reform attitude towards these canonical texts. Okay. The first and most important of the canonical texts is, of course, the Hebrew Bible, comprised of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, uh, which you may know is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and followed by the books of the prophets, the historical or historiographical, historiographical <laughs> books, historiographical, <laughs> and, and then the final section of writings, which includes Psalms, Proverbs, and books including Esther and Job and Ecclesiastes and so on. So, and this is different from the an order of a Christian Bible, right? The order is different, and the exact books that are included are a bit different. But it's it's similar, and we call it the Hebrew Bible. We do not call it the Old Testament because we don't consider it old. We don't think there's a new one. <laughs> well, we recognize that for Christians there is a new one, but it is not ours. Right, it's not new for us. Yeah, it's very important that you understand that Judaism did not stop. When Christianity began. So while Christians were writing the New Testament, we were writing the Mishnah, which was compiled in the year 200, which reads more like a legal text. And by the time of the Mishnah, the, a lot of the culture had changed for the Jews. In the year 70, the temple was destroyed and the temple was the site, among other things, the temple was the site of the animal sacrifices, which were what peoples of the Middle East all over and the Mediterranean, that's how they communicated with God. If you read the ancient Greek literature, before the men went to war, they sacrificed bulls to Zeus. Right. So, and, and one of the ways of interpreting the sacrificial laws in Leviticus was to limit this as much as possible. You can only do it at the temple. You can only do certain animals and... And so it was in some ways seen as an attempt to limit this animal sacrifice. And by the time the temple was destroyed, the rabbis were already developing um, other ways of worship, of study, and of prayer. And the brilliance of the rabbis of the Mishnaic period was that they said, this is our new service. The word avodah, service, was initially applied to the sacrificial cult in the temple. And they took that same word and said, our avodah now, our service is the worship, the words. And today the, we have services in the morning and afternoon. Those correspond, and the words used in Hebrew correspond to the times of the sacrifices. Right. And then there's an evening sacrifice as well. So they pegged it to the old culture, but brought it into modernity. And those rabbis um, did not say, well, we're going to throw out these old books now, particularly Leviticus, because we can't do those things anymore. They said, no, these are still our rules. And this is how we're bringing the old ways into modern times, which, by the way, is how I see what I'm doing as a reform rabbi, bringing the received religion and the received texts into our modern times. Right. Because right. Judaism was never an unchanging thing. So the Mishnah was compiled and times continued to change, of course, because times do. 
And so rabbis kept writing and interpreting the Mishnah. And in the year about 500, between 500 and 600, the Talmud was redacted, was compiled. Um, and that isn't just one book. I could hold up one book and show you the Mishnah. The Talmud is 72 volumes, the Babylonian version, which is considered the most authoritative. There was a separate Talmud in Jerusalem, which overlapped a lot because the two communities spoke to each other, but had, had some things in it about sacrifices that were not in the Babylonian Talmud and left out a lot of what was in the Babylonian Talmud. So we have two. We have two Talmuds. Those are the books that um, apply for an Orthodox Jew universally to Jews. After that, there was more dispersal among different places, and there, although there was a big um, center of Jewish learning for so, some centuries later in Babylonia, it was no longer considered that there was one central religious authority or one central religious writing. So. Rabbis wrote for their own communities and decided for their own communities. And so once you get past the, the Mishnah and the Gemara, um, the Talmud, um, mm -hmm. if we take, so we, we're saying in a sense, the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible and the, the Talmud are the sort of the canonical text of Judaism. And then right. later there were some very influential uh, rabbinical thinkers like Maimonides right. and like Rashi um, mm -hmm. But these are not so much considered canonical texts. Am I correct not in that? In the same way, Maimonides had two major works: the Mishnah Torah, in which he he went through the Talmud, which is very much thinking of the word. It's not linear. You start in the middle, wherever you start, and the rabbis go from topic to topic. It's associational. Right. That's the word. So, if you want to know about the rules for Shabbat. You have to know the entire Talmud because they talk about Shabbat in the tractate called Shabbat, but they also talk about it throughout. Right. So Maimonides, uh, because of the sad state of Jewish learning, and not everybody knew the whole Talmud well enough to know what the rules were, went through with his amazing mind and came up with 14 books of the Mishnah Torah, the re repetition of the Torah, and said, these are the, this is what you should do based on the Talmud. These are the rules without all the discussion because the right, Talmud right. Has, has many layered discussion and says, well, this rabbi says this and this rabbi says that. And then the rabbis agreed to go this way. Um, Maimonides redacted it, but people objected to that because he didn't cite his sources and say where he was taking things from. So there were other, that was a code, considered a code, although it's not really a code, code of Jewish law. There were others written over time. I mentioned the Shulchan Aruch as well. Maimonides also write, wrote a more philosophical text called The Guide to the Perplexed, or For the Perplexed. So none of the, uh, the major difference between all those other writings and the writings up through the Talmud is that the traditional teaching is that God gave the Torah, the first five books, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And it's taken that the entire written scripture was given to Moses and written down. What the rabbis who wrote the Mishnah and the Talmud did was considered oral law based on that scripture. And there are two ways um, that are traditionally related. One is that God really told the whole thing to yeah. Moses. 
and Moses didn't write it down. Moses told it to Joshua. Joshua told it to the elders, told it to the men of the great assembly. And so all the rabbis of the Mishnah and Talmud were doing was repeating orally what Moses had right. passed right. along and then eventually got written down. And the, well, impetus, the impetus to write it down was because of the dispersal, right? The Jews had been dispersed in the land and so, well, we better write this down or these oral, tradi- these oral knowledge is going to get lost. That's the, yeah. And the, but, but the other explanation, is, which seems a little more realistic, is no, they didn't, God didn't give Moses all of this and all of this wasn't repeated, it, but God gave Moses the rules for how to interpret mm. and there are compilations of those rules. So if you read uh, Mishnah or Talmud, it'll say, based on this piece of scripture, you get this, and they're following certain rules of interpretation. Right. If you study those as a modern scholar with a modern hat on, the, and you ask the question, is this exegesis of the text, is, is the Mishnah simply the explication of what's already in the Torah, which is how the rabbis presented it, that was their authority, or is this eisegesis they're reading things in that they want to see and it's pretty clear if you're a modern reader that it's eisegesis the rabbis were creating a religion for their times and saying here's the proof text right although as you properly pointed out Mm -hmm. um there really is no choice but to do that right i mean um i mean look I'll just give a very simple example that people will, I think, understand immediately. You know, one of the things, one of the laws that you find in the in the Bible is, the, is to, that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Right. Um, and, you know, clearly this is meant so, to, to sort of ensure that, that, you know, people are not sort of you know, slave driven in their lives. There's a sort of a consideration to the person, to the individual and to the person's family and to this this need for time that's spent not working. Um but of course, what counts as work depends entirely on the circumstances, on the context. What counted as work in 500 BC, uh, BCE, might not be any labor at all in 2015. And so it's really not possible to follow these rules unless what they mean is updated, right? Well, let me say that it says nothing in the Torah about what Counts as work. That's right. Do not work at your occupations. And when I say that our religion, whether you're Orthodox, Reform, whatever, the Jewish religion is not the religion of the Bible, which was based on sacrifice. Now, there are commandments in the Bible that we still would include as parts of Judaism. You shall not murder. Yeah. Um, and, And there are lots of commandments that are a part of it. And you shall observe the Shabbat. You shall observe the Sabbath. That is part of our religion. But how we observe that was developed later by the rabbis. And what they did was they they were primarily an agricultural society. They said, if you go through the Torah, there are 39 activities that are listed as agricultural work. And so all the traditional restrictions are based on those. And what, what happened, so that is... And, and for an Orthodox Jew, those come from God. Right. Because the traditional view is that God told Moses, told the, uh, right. told the rabbis, right. and so right. they were right. just 
So these are, this is what God wants. Right. The Reformed Jew who sees this all from a more modern historical perspective, this was the development of the religion of the times, but we don't have to be bound to it. And when I was growing up in the 60s in the Reform, Reform congregation, uh, in what is now called classical reform, I was told that the essence of Judaism, not of Reform Judaism, but the essence of Judaism is ethical monotheism. And that the ritual was secondary, and the ritual is what comes out of the Holocaust. So philosophers have, have since abandoned the idea of essences and essentialism, and so have Reformed Jews. And Reformed Judaism, though, has moved back to embracing more of the traditions. And we recognize that without those traditions, it's hard to say what Judaism even is. For instance, I don't know too many Reformed Jews who don't light Hanukkah candles. And they light one candle the first night and two candles the second night and three candles the third night. That is from traditional Jewish law, right. That is, right. which is called halakha. We don't think that God told us to do that, even if it's written in the, in the Talmud. But that's what we recognize as Judaism. If you throw all that away, what do you have? And even at the most classical reform um, periods, when ritual was actively shunned, Still, what we did was based in that tradition. Right. Our right. worship service, even when we prayed in English, the followed some traditional rubrics, and we would light candles. We wouldn't light them at the right time, according to orthodoxy, but we lit two candles because that's what Jews do, and that was right. coming right. from the halakha. Yeah, and look, I mean, I remember... I'm old enough to remember when reform was much more reform in the sense of I can remember back in the 70s when if you went into a reform synagogue, no one was wearing a talit. Um, right. No one was wearing a kippah, a, a skull cap. Um, maybe the rabbi was. And if the rabbi had a talit, it looked like it was like this wide. And it was like a little, it almost looked like something a priest would wear. <laughs> I don't happen to have one, but they, they if you're moving around on the, in front of the congregation, those actually are much more practical. Yeah, um, and now if you go to a reform, a reform service, you'll see you know plenty of people wearing tallits. Most of the men wearing kippah, uh, some of the women as well. Um, and it's much more, it looks much more now like what a conservative service looked like in back in the 70s right. than, than, than a reform one does. And I guess part of the danger of that going so far that way is if you get rid of all the practices and the rituals, then all that's left is belief, and you wind up being almost forced in a creedal direction, um, which is not something you want to do, right? Um, and I also think that, that there is a sentimental connection uh, to the to the to the holidays and the traditions. And I mean sentimental in a good sense, not in a bad sense. That um, that connects people. Certainly, if it would have had no appeal, to, the, the the reform services of the 60s would have no appeal to me at all um, precisely because they don't connect me in that sentimental way to tradition, history, people and so on and so forth um, let me just ask you while we're talking about the, the Bible for a minute and how reform Judaism thinks of it um, 
what about the question of historicity? Um, what is the reform view? You know, you said, well, well, Moses didn't, we probably didn't get this, the, didn't get the whole thing from God, but he got some of it from God. Um, you know, was there actually a Moses at all? I mean, well, you know, we now know pretty much from scholarship that there was no exodus from Egypt, that that's a myth. Um, well, the um, that's more in question. Well, but you know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, there's all sorts of scholarship that's going to come out that's going to show that various things that are in this text didn't happen or happened very differently. Or that right. the, yeah. My question is, what is the reform view with respect to the historicity of what's in the Hebrew Bible? Okay. Um, you have to take it part by part. First 11 chapters, the story of creation and the flood and so on. But we're pretty sure there was a flood. There's evidence of that because it's in the literature of many different ancient peoples, but those are at the level of mythological stories. They're very important. They teach us important things, but we don't take those as historical. Beginning with Abraham and Abraham's family, some of that may have happened in some way, but it still does not have the historical backing that we say it all happened the way this was written here. Exodus, actually, there is some evidence. There were peoples in Egypt who came and were enslaved and left, and it might have been one of those peoples. Um, we're never, I don't think we'll ever find the evidence to say, oh, yes, this happened exactly this way. And, and even if there was a people who was in Egypt and enslaved and left and formed the people of Israel, uh, it's not likely that... It, the details are all there, and I don't think that's particularly important because it's important how we learn from that. And there are there are places where, in fact, there are seeming contradictions in the text to a modern mind. Uh, in the ancient mind, for storytelling, it doesn't matter that at one place it says Noah was told to say, take seven pairs and then was told to take two pairs. It was different, probably different versions of the story that were melded together. And it was richer if you had more different versions. Yeah. They didn't so, have the same. They didn't have the same conception of history in the ancient world as we do. Right, I'm just right. wondering about whether reform has an official position.